Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Well, thank you for uh, returning to uh, my little series on the history of Israel. And uh, this week I've entitled uh, this lesson as Captivity and Return. Just as a quick recap of what we covered last week, uh, last week we talked about ancient Israel, the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and how each was conquered in turn, first by the Assyrian Empire and then later by the Babylonian Empire, and kind of ended with the Babylonian captivity and the exiles being taken out of the land and not replaced, meaning that for the most part, the land we would call Israel was depopulated by the end of that event, and they were taken to Babylon and under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And as I was reading about this and about the various rulers that we talk about, it's one of the fun parts about studying ancient history is just the sheer unfiltered ego of many of these, these kings. As the book of Daniel records us about Nebuchadnezzar, the king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And of course, the house he's referring to is what we call today the Neo or New Babylonian Empire. And, and just as a preview of things to come, that's not even the most egotistical statement that I came across this week. Uh, that'll come later. So the remnants of what was, you know, there's not a lot of information as far as what happened in Israel post-Babylonian captivity. We know that the Babylonians did not take every single soul out of the land. It, as you know from the story of Daniel and uh, the other young Jewish men taken out of Israel, they were the educated ones. They were the skilled ones. They either were part of the nobility or they were just wealthy or they had some sort of skilled trade, craft. The people who were left were the uneducated and unskilled. Jerusalem was pretty much abandoned at this point and the remnants of the people of Judah were centered around Mitzpah, which is a city actually mentioned in the Old Testament several times. Uh, this is where um, I believe Saul is crowned king originally uh, before they uh, occupied Jerusalem. Now, as far as the exiles in Babylon go, uh, we know that the Babylonians spread them out among several different cities and did so intentionally. Some of these cities were actually built exclusively for them. That's not to say that life was cushy. Uh, you know, there's a reason that the Jewish people remember it as a time of bondage and, 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 and uh, sadness. But we do know from Babylonian sources that they were quite successful as a trend that will continue and follow the Jewish people no matter where they go. The Jewish people become very adept at business and trade. And we have proof of this. I want to show you some more cuneiform tablets. These are called the Murashu tablets and they were found in the ruins of a Babylonian city called Nippur. And these were discovered uh, I think I have the date here, 1893. And there were over 730 tablets found in one building that belonged to this family, the Marashu family. And it was discovered that they were Jewish, that they ran a business, and that their business was called Marashu and Sons, which either sounds like a law firm or a moving company to me, but it was actually, a, uh, they, were, they were like a, a business consor a consortium and apparently eventually like were involved in all kinds of like intrigue and assassination and political maneuvering, kind of like ancient Walmart or something like that. I don't know. 
we know that uh, this Jewish community existed because they're, they're sort of indirectly mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, at the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, uh, he says this, now it came to pass in the 13th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth year, fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. This river he's referring to runs right next to the city of Nippur, where the Jewish population was located. There's an unexcavated site also nearby, mentioned by Ezekiel as being another settlement of, uh, of Jewish people, but I can't tell you anything about it because it's a mound of dirt right now although they know that there's a city underneath of it, and that's one of the tantalizing things about history and archaeology, is there's dozens of these sites around the ancient world where the, no one has just gotten to digging them up yet. Uh, you can go to Israel and see these, you can go to Turkey and see these, and, and they'll just say, yeah, we're pretty sure that's the city of, you know, something famous, mentioned in the Bible many times. We just haven't gotten around to actually digging it up yet. Don't have the funding, don't have the permission, don't own the land, something like that. Ezekiel goes on to say that uh, this beginning of his book takes place in the fifth day of the fifth month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Speaking of King, king Jehoiachin, who is a captive king from Judah living in uh, Babylon, the Bible tells us that when he was originally captured, he was sent to prison. But eventually his situation changed uh, when new king came, and uh, we know a little bit about his life because we found uh, well, not we, I didn't find it, but archaeologists found uh, inscriptions describing his, uh, his rations. They're called Jehoiachin's ration tablets. And these were excavated in the, uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, this excavation was going on in Babylon by uh, a, a, a German excavation team. Remarkably, I was reading that they started excavating in 1899. World War I broke out in 1914, and they just kept on going, just pretended like nothing was going on, and only left the site when they were chased out by the British in 1917. These tablets were stored in a barrel-vaulted uh, uh, underground room uh, near the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, and they say this, they mention uh, the king's name, they mention he's from Judah, and this specific tablet is talking about how much oil, for cooking purposes, he was allotted, and to his sons and family members. This unit of measurement, a sila, by the way, is believed to be about the equivalent of 800 milliliters. As far as what Babylon looks like today, this is actually a picture taken by the U.S. military during the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, unfortunate for the world of archaeology, during that invasion, uh, part of the ruins of Babylon were damaged by coalition forces. It was a bit of a scandal at the time, perhaps you remember. Babylon's also known for having part of it being reconstructed. No, those walls aren't original, but it's believed to be something like that when it was looking like something like that when it was new. Here is a view uh, from the air of part of the ruins. Probably one of the more famous uh, remnants of the city is this statue of a lion. There's actually a man that he's standing over as if he has killed him or conquered him. You might know that lions figure prominently in Babylonian architecture and art. This is also uh, possibly the location of one of the ancient wonders of uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world, where the Hanging Gardens were supposed to have been. Although some historians believe that these were actually in Nineveh, not in Babylon. 
If you go to uh, Germany in Berlin, you can actually see a reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate. Looks like this. And this is about the place where those uh, tablets with the king's uh, oil rations were found. And it might have looked something like this when Babylon was at the height of its power. And this all confirms the biblical account of the same events in 2 Kings 25, which says in verse 27, And it came to pass in the seven and thirteenth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, that evil Murdoch, uh, it's actually his name, not just that he's evil, though probably the author felt that way too, king of Babylon in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, out of prison, and he spake kindly to him, and set his throne above the throne of kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance, or his rations, was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. And we just read what that was, at least part of it, what fragments survive uh, on that tablet. Speaking of the kings of Babylon, on your handout you'll see I listed out all of them uh, in order. And some of these names I'm sure you, you recognize. Let's skip down to the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire where our story will resume with Belshazzar. Now, he was actually co-regent with his father, and, uh, but his father was not really in the picture and was kind of, kind of ceding the, the kingdom to his son. And uh, really, it seems that Belshazzar was the one actually in charge, and certainly that's how it's presented in the Bible. Babylonian rule, as you remember, suddenly came to an end during a uh, riotous feast hosted by, by Belshazzar. And you remember that he sees the writing on the wall, calls in Daniel to, to explain what it is that he saw. And we have the story in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. A common insult at the time of ancient empires to take things that were of religious significance to a people they had conquered and essentially make light of them in their, their celebrations. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. Kind of like me up here sometimes. Then Daniel, brought it, then Daniel was brought before the king and the king spake and said unto him, to Daniel, art thou Daniel, which art, the child, art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? Then Daniel answered, basically, I'm, I'm kind of skipping around here, but Daniel answers the king. He scolds him for many, many verses about all the things that he's done wrong and all the insults. He, he tells him, you, you know, even your father, using the term father kind of loosely here for Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, even he was eventually humbled before God, recognized God's power after being you know, forced to live as an animal. And he's saying, you knew all of that and had all that example to go off, and yet you still chosen to do these horrible things. Let the, and, and, and Belshazzar tries to give him gifts and tries to say, hey, 
let me give you some garments and some cool stuff. Now tell me what this means. And Daniel says, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. Then was the part of the hand sent from him and this writing was written. And this is just really like to me, like if, if you were a king, this surely would change your countenance if you saw this. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Bible tells us that Belshazzar that very night died in uh, a takeover of the city of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. And the Bible goes on to say that after this happened, the uh, control of Babylon and surrounding territories fell to a man named Darius the Mede. And this, be this marks the beginning of the Persian takeover of the Babylonian Empire. Now, this also brings us to an interesting question. From contemporary historical sources, we know that the Persians did indeed do this. We know that the Persians, from contemporary sources, did, in fact, uh, take Babylon without a fight. Uh, there's uh, some ancient historians who tell us the story that uh, actually what the Persians and Medes did is that they took a river that flowed in the city of Babylon and they actually dug a canal, a, a, a trench, to divert the river away from the city, which meant that there was now an opening uh, about the water up to about a man's thigh that the soldiers could march through and take the city by surprise. But who is this Darius the Mede person? Because as we're going to talk about pretty soon, the, we know that the Persian Empire was actually being ruled by a man named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, in fact, he becomes known as. And that's an interesting question. There are a few different explanations. The secular explanation is, of course, the really secular explanation is that the book of Daniel is entirely fabricated, was written centuries after it claims to have been written. I'm not going to consider that one. But one uh, I found in a book that was written by Dr. Wickham. He wrote an entire book about this topic. It's called Darius the Mede. And Dr. Wickham's in, uh, interpretation of this is that uh, Darius is another name for the governor who ruled over Babylon and its surrounding territories. In, in, in Persian politics, that would be known as a satrap. And in Persian sources, he actually goes by the name of Gubaru. So if you're looking for a baby name, there, there you go today. And, uh, and that's one interpretation. Uh, we know that this man was, was in Babylon at the time. We know that he's mentioned in other Persian sources years and years later. And so that's his interpretation of who Darius the Mede is. Uh, other biblical scholars will contend that Darius the Mede is just another name and title for Cyrus himself. And that Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Greater, just the same person. Uh, so those are, the two, those are two possibilities for explaining who this man was. Regardless, we know that this marks the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Persian Empire led by Cyrus the Great. And the Persian Empire is even bigger and even stronger than the empires that came before it. And its policies towards the Jewish people are going to be quite a bit different than they were previously. Here is a map of the Persian Empire uh, at the height of its dominance. And uh, it is indeed... A big one. It's also known as the Achaemenid Empire, named after the dynasty of, the, of Cyrus's family who, who ruled over it. When Cyrus came to power, he immediately changed a lot of things. Kind of like how the President of the United States, as soon as they're elected, they sign like 
how many hundreds of executive orders, right? He signed, Cyrus signed a bunch of executive orders basically the day he took over. A lot of them had to do with reversing Babylonian policies on uh, religious persecution, and, but also on returning people who had been relocated by Babylonians or even Assyrians before them and allowing them to return to their homelands and to worship whatever god they chose to worship. This became foundational to how the Persians decided to rule their empire. We have a record of this, not only in the Bible, but also from Cyrus himself. Um, this is a, uh, I hesitate to use the word document, it's a, it's a cylinder of clay with cuneiform on it, and it's, it's known as the Cyrus Cylinder because it's a proclamation from the new king, and it was discovered in 1879, and it says this, I, that's Cyrus, return to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. In this particular context, he's, he's talking about Mesopotamian peoples, but clearly the pattern is being set that he intends to send people who have been relocated back to their original homelands, probably as a way of smoothing over the transition between the Babylonians and himself and in an effort to maintain stability and prevent rebellion and all those good things that a king tries to do. By the way, on that same, that same inscription, Cyrus talks a lot about himself. Remember when we were talking about egotistical ancient kings? He was no exception. Even though he is described later in the book of Isaiah as the Lord's anointed, he was also pretty full of himself too. The, the, the cylinder goes on to say, I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, legitimate king, king of Babylon, blah, 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 blah. I, I even read one, in, one translation this week that said, it, 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 it uh, rendered it this way, I am Cyrus, king of the universe. All right. The world revolved around him, for sure. If you want to go see the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, next time you're in London, you can go to the British Museum and see it, uh, see it there. Well, anyways, back to the biblical narrative. Sometime around the year 538 BC, Cyrus then issues a decree specifically for the Jewish people, inviting them to return to Judah, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, and eventually they also get permission to even rebuild the temple itself. The Bible tells us now in the first years, this is early on, of the, of the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also into writing, like those cylinders we just saw, saying, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and he had put them in the house of his gods. And we, we know that the Jewish people then began to assemble, heading back towards Israel. But not all Jews took up him up on that offer. 
Um, in fact, a lot of historians and biblical scholars actually marvel at the relatively low numbers of Jews who took advantage of Cyrus's decree, which tells us that a lot of Jews were pretty comfortable where they were, at least comfortable enough, at least tolerably so. We know from the example of the Marashu and Sons that they were, being, they were quite successful financially. In fact, this description of them receiving all kinds of gifts of gold and silver and vessels, a lot of that's coming from Jews who are in Babylon who aren't going, but do decide to contribute towards the effort to rebuild Jerusalem. Ezra tells us that the first group of, of, of Jews to return is led by Zerubbabel. Uh, the grand tally is just under 50,000 people who return to Jerusalem. And then later, of course, there'd be other waves of, 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 of returnees who come under Ezra and, and Nehemiah. They then begin the construction of a new temple. We know that it was, it was contested by the peoples around them. And that actually this will happen multiple times, that the Persian king has to either send word, as we'll, or as we'll see later, even perhaps in person, remind the people around Israel that, yes, the Jews have permission to be here, and they have permission to build the temple. By the way, you should help them. Construction of the temple finished during the reign of, Pers of the Persian king Darius I, and the Bible records uh, the, the, the beginning of the construction of the temple in Ezra 3, which I think is an interesting passage for a couple of reasons. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Aspah, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by the course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But... Many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy because they realized pretty soon after the foundation is laid that this new temple is not going to be nearly as splendid as Solomon's old temple. So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of, the, of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. While this was going on, the Persian Empire continued its expansion. Darius ended up being another great king of Persia. He expanded Persia to the height of its power and its territorial extent. But then he also made some enemies that will eventually have quite an impact on Israel. In 499 uh, BC, Darius is finishing his conquest of Asia Minor. So if you know your geography, that's what is basically today Turkey. He's moving west uh, towards Europe. On the west coast of, of Asia Minor, also known as Anatolia, he finds Greeks and he conquers them, but then they rebel against him. And he has to fight uh, a rebellion of Greeks in Asia Minor. It turns out that the Greeks in this part of the world are uh, being helped by an annoying Greek city across the Aegean Sea called Athens. The rebellion is eventually crushed, but Darius is determined that he's going to go to Greece, go to Athens, and punish them for interfering with the internal uh, affairs of his great Persian empire. In 490, Darius invades Greece. Uh, he lands on the coast. His, while his army is still on the coast, the Athenians kind of show up, even though they're vastly outnumbered, and to their surprise, 
they, they, the Greeks just decide to charge them while they're still on the beach, and kind of amazingly, the Greeks win. This is known as the Battle of Marathon, and Darius has to retreat and try, uh, well, he doesn't actually get to do anything else. His army is smashed. He has to return to Persia. He then spends many years plotting revenge and how to get back at Greece, but he doesn't live to see it. Uh, instead, his thirst for revenge is passed on to his son, Xerxes. If you're wondering about that name, by the way, the Battle of Marathon, yes, it does have a connection uh, with the race. According to legend, when the Athenians pulled off that upset and defeated the Persians, a man ran uh, all the way from the, from the side of the battle to Athens and to deliver the news of their victory. Uh, at that point, the Athenians were getting ready for like the apocalypse, basically, and, and uh, this was very unexpected news. And according to legend, this, uh, this gentleman here arrived, delivered the news of the victory, and then died of exhaustion on the spot, very dramatically. Uh, and then when the Olympic Games were brought back for the first time in 1896, they were hosted in Athens, and one of the events was called the Marathon. Well, anyways, back to history, older history. Everything I'm talking about is history. Uh, after This then passes the story on to Xerxes. Xerxes has to deal with a rebellion in Egypt because who doesn't? And then he decides to uh, hold a grand council for his invasion of Greece. He's going to assemble an army far larger than his father did, and he's going to avenge the family name and, and conquer these pesky Greeks. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that uh, he had this council and this is what happened. After the conquest of Egypt, intending now to take in hand the expedition against Athens, Xerxes held a special assembly of the noblest among the Persians so that he could learn their opinions and declare his will before them all. When they were assembled, Xerxes spoke to them as follows. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont, that's a, that's a small uh, body of water between Asia Minor and Greece, and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, that's Greece, so that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was set on making an expedition against these men, but he is dead. I will never rest until I have taken Athens and burnt it for the unprovoked wrong that its people did to my father and to me. Here is a map of uh, the... Uh, the campaign. Uh, if you look on the far right, he left from Sardis, and that's followed that kind of pinkish red line, and went north, and then crossed the Hellespont, that small channel of water, to get over into Thrace. Uh, they had to, the way that they did the crossing is they had to build a bridge, basically a giant pontoon bridge. Uh, we know that they built two bridges originally, and uh, uh, this is a distance of about 1,400 yards. They had to build this pontoon bridge. However, as, per, as Xerxes' army arrived, a storm came through and wrecked both of the bridges. And Xerxes was one of those kings with a violent temper, and uh, he took it out on many different people. He had the managers who had been in charge of the construction of the bridge all beheaded. And then he ordered his men to wade out into the water and whip the water several hundred times with lashes and poke it with hot irons to punish the water. He showed them. It just seems like something like a, like a, like a first grader would do, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, we've all been there. Like, you stub your toe on the door, and then you, like, smack the door because you're so angry. I mean, I guess we all have a little Xerxes in us. 
well, they built new bridges. This is what it looked like. And uh, it, it's quite a feat of engineering. They, they strapped all these, these boats together. These are triremes, they're galleys, essentially. They're, they're ore-powered ships. And then put planks down, tied them all together with flax and winches. Uh, they put down anchors on either side of the ship to keep them in place. They built screens on either side. That's not for the benefit of the people. That's for the benefit of the animals. So they don't freak out when they see the sea and bolts and that sort of thing. And his army made it across. This was a bit of a surprise to the, to the Greeks who had not expected a land route coming from the north. And the Persians were initially successful. They defeated a combined Greek army at the Battle of Thermopylae. This is the battle that happened in a very narrow mountain pass. And you're probably familiar with it as being the battle where the, the famous 300 Spartans led by King Leonidas made their last stand and, and fought to the last man. Although it was more than just 300 Spartans, there were also Greeks from other places too. But it's a better story if it's just the 300, right? And Herodotus even tells us that they defended themselves to the last with their swords, with their teeth and their hands, and all kinds of gory details like that. The Greeks, however, were able to recover from this defeat on land because they also had to contend with Xerxes' fleet, which was keeping his army supplied and protected from the coast. And they were able to use Xerxes' pride and overconfidence to lure the Persian fleet into a very narrow bay on the coast of Greece where the Greek fleet, although smaller, would have the advantage because their ships were heavier and more sturdy, um, more, well, they were faster uh, than a lot of Persian ships. And this resulted in the famous Battle of Salamis, where uh, the Greek commander, Themistocles, was able to deliver a, a overwhelming defeat on the Persians and smash their fleet. Uh, Xerxes had actually built for himself an observation post uh, overlooking the battle so that he could see his campaign come to a terrible end. Uh, there's, even, uh, there's a story that uh, I like that a Persian captain had his ship sunk he washed up on the shore, came up to Xerxes, and said, we're losing because of the Phoenicians in the navy. They're, the Phoenician captains are cowards. That's why we're losing. And at that very moment, someone pointed out to the king, which I think is what's happening in this illustration, uh, a Phoenician ship actually sink a Greek one, and then they get hit by another Greek ship, I think if I remember right, and then the, the, the Phoenicians decide just to board the other ship, and they took it, and, and Xerxes, goes, Xerxes goes, really? Because look at that guy. And then he has the captain beheaded because he's Xerxes. You can actually go and see the side of the battle today. This is what it looked like, the, ba the Bay of Salamis. And uh, at the time, it would have looked probably something like this. A year later, the Persian land army meets a combined Greek army who's ready for them this time, and they are thoroughly destroyed at the Battle of Plataea. The Persian commander in charge of the army is killed in the battle. Xerxes, however, is not, because he's not there. He knew that things were not going well, and so his wife told him, hey, you should, uh, you should go home. You should leave one of your generals in charge. If he wins, great, you get the glory because you're the king. If he loses, well, the, the, the shame of the defeat will be on him, not on you. And so he goes. In Western history, this, is, this, is, this, whole, this whole series of wars between the Greeks and the Persians is just commonly called the Persian Wars. And uh, some in interpret the whole series of events to be the, the survival of democracy uh, because Athens is, of course, a very early example of a democratic government. Not as democratic as we would you know, consider, say, the United States to be today, but the leader of Athens was a man named Pericles who was alive at the time. 
and described his country's government like this. It is true that we are called a democracy, which literally means thing of the people, for the administration is in the hands of the many and not of the few. A man may benefit his country, whatever be the obscurity of his condition. Uh, the Athenians actually used a lottery system for filling many of their government posts. Kind of like how we fill jury, uh, jury posts today. They did that for most of their government positions, except for like, uh, uh, things like military commanders. And of course, centuries later, when the United States is being founded, many American, uh, many of the founding fathers of the United States will look to Athens, partially at least, for inspiration. I tell you all that because there's an interesting connection between all that stuff about the Persian Wars and the Bible, specifically with the book of Esther. The book of Esther is a fascinating book to read, and I, I first really became aware of how good it was when um, Pastor Andy did those series on Esther. I'm sure many of you uh, heard that. Uh, it's really, he did a really good job. And uh, Esther tells a story of a, a young Jewish girl and her uncle living in the Persian Empire, uh, and uh, it, it describes it as under King uh, Ahasuerus. Now, this is the Hebrew, this is pretty universally believed to be the Hebrew rendering of, actually, Xerxes, same guy. So Esther ends up becoming married to Xerxes. I kind of wonder how that went later, but that, knowing what I know about him, but that's what happened. Interestingly, how does the book of Esther begin? It begins with King Ahasuerus, and he's doing what? They're having a big party, right? They're having a big banquet, a big meeting, a big council, perhaps we might call it. And this makes perfect sense, because as we just read a little bit ago, that Xerxes did hold a great war council where he planned out his invasion of Greece, it's very possible that these are the same event. And that when he's telling everyone, I'm going to avenge my father and kill the Greeks, it's the same, you know, it probably happened over multiple days, but it's the same meeting, the same feast, the same banquet as the one described in Esther. We also know that in Esther, there's a time gap that's not really explained. Uh, the beginning of the book in Esther 1 talks about these events happening in the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus, Xerxes. And then by the time that Esther actually becomes starts becoming his wife, that actually doesn't happen until chapter 2, verse 16, and it very clearly says, so Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. There's a four-year gap, and it just so happens that Xerxes' invasion of Greece was about exactly that amount of time. So it would appear that Xerxes made the council to go to Greece, had the whole drama with his wife Vashti, then went off to Greece, came back, and that's where the rest of Esther picks up the story, which I just think is a really interesting connection. Even though a lot of uh, secular historians don't believe that, that, that the book of Esther is actual history, they don't actually have any reason to not believe it because there's nothing in the book of Esther that contradicts the historical chronology. It actually fits, as we've seen, pretty well. It's just that there are no other sources besides the Bible that confirm the identity of Esther and her uncle Mordecai. Interestingly, that both of them have very Persian names. And I read what they, their names meant in Persian, and I didn't write it down, so I don't remember. Uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty clear that, especially once we get to this, the part about uh, Haman and the plot to kill the Jews, that they were concealing their identity in the Persian Empire, uh, and that that was not known that they were Jewish. 
Well, anyways, back to the story of Persia. Despite their defeat, their power remained pretty strong, although you can't lose multiple wars like that and there not be consequences later. As for Greece, well, as is often the case, when uh, people come together to defeat a common enemy, as soon as the common enemy is gone, what do those people do? They turn on each other, right? And that's exactly what happened. Athens and Sparta went to war with one another, along with their allies, in basically a catastrophic civil war in Greece called the Peloponnesian War. And uh, eventually Sparta comes out on top, ironically, because they ask for help from Persia to defeat Athens. Um, there's a massive plague that's, that goes through Athens. Pericles actually dies to it. But by the end of it, Athens and Sparta, the traditional, the tr- traditional superpowers of that part of the world are, are basically gone, and they never come back. Instead, it paves the way for another city-state to the north to rise to power, and that is Macedon. The kingdom of Macedon is in the northern parts of Greece. In fact, to some Greeks, it's barely part of Greece at all. I read one time that uh, a good way to think about it is that to, to, to the Greeks, like Athenians and uh, Spartans and others, Macedon was kind of like the hillbilly country of Greece, I guess. Uh, but they were barely Greek. And interestingly, this is uh, still a point of contention in that part of the world today. Uh, There is a country, you may know, called Macedonia, but there is a region in the modern country of Greece, also called Macedonia, and uh, this was a big point of contention, had been for many years, so much so that in order for Macedonia to join the European Union, they had to agree to change their name to the Republic of North Macedonia, and that took place in 2019, and because both countries, of course, want to have the, the privilege of, the, of being the place of the ancient kingdom of Macedonia, mostly because of one guy, which we'll get to in a second. Macedon rose to power and prominence under its king, Philip. Philip was a, uh, a very forward-thinking, a very militaristic-minded king. He reformed the army of Macedon, upgraded it to new standards to make it superior to other Greek armies and also Persian armies, and then planned out a huge invasion of the Persian Empire that he was going to carry out to unify Greece and to build a Greek empire. His army was based on a military formation called a phalanx, which was a tightly packed group of men with very, very long spears called pikes, And the men had to hold those pikes at certain angles to create this block, basically wall of of iron and bronze. And then you notice that they even arch their their pikes at different angles as the further they go back, which actually provides them some defense against uh, missile fire and and the like. And if done properly, you can basically create a whole wall of this, and it's almost impossible to stop it unless you have a phalanx of your own or you somehow get around it. Before Philip could launch his invasion of, uh, of Persia, he had to unify Greece, which he did so. And then just after that, he was assassinated by uh, one of his own bodyguards, as I recall, um, in a bit of uh, Macedonian court intrigue. And it seemed like his plan was basically done for because his son and heir was young. He was only 23 years old, but his name was Alexander. Alexander took up his his father's mandate, and unlike Xerxes, doing the same thing, he was actually, as you surely know, very, very successful. 
Alexander took his father's Macedonian army. He then uh, invaded the Persian Empire two years later. And as one historian put it, Alexander of Macedon cracked the Persian Empire like cracking a rotten egg. And everywhere he went, most critically, Alexander didn't just conquer, he also spread Greek culture. Because as much as he was into military tactics and strategy, he loved Greek culture. He was tutored by Aristotle himself, and he brought with him books like the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and scholars so that everywhere they went, they spread Greek culture. I could do a whole series on Alexander the Great, and I'm, 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 I'm trying not to get bogged down too much. He, he's he's unbelievable story. Alexander was a, was a military commander, one of the few who actually fought all of his battles himself. Almost all the time, he was in danger or even on the front line himself. In fact, he, he suffered numerous, what probably should have been life-ending injuries. I'll just list a few of them. In his campaigns, about 10 years of fighting, uh, he took a cleaver slash to the head, a sore blow to the thigh, a catapult missile to the chest, which went through his shield and his body armor, and lodged itself in his chest, and he lived, an arrow through the leg, a stone strike to the head and neck, a dart through the shoulder, an arrow in the ankle, and an arrow through the lung. <laughs> and he lived through all of it. Um, unbelievable. Well, uh, Alexander invaded the Persian Empire and really didn't face all that much opposition. He defeated the Persian, the Persian army in, uh, across from Greece at the Battle of Granicus, but the Persian king at the time wasn't really taking him very seriously. This is Darius III of the Persian Empire, and Alexander basically just kind of like blitzkrieged his way across the, the empire. He didn't face all that much opposition in the area around Israel. The only city that resisted him was the city of Tyre, uh, the Phoenician colony of Tyre, and uh, then, once he was past them, he went down into Egypt. The Egyptians also welcomed him without a fight. They declared him to be the son of the Egyptian god Ammon, and they proclaimed him to be the new, the new pharaoh. Uh, speaking of Tyre, you might know that the, the Bible prophesies in the Old Testament the destruction of Tyre and how bad it will be. And, of course, these are the same Phoenicians who propagated the worship of Baal. And indeed, their end was terrible. Tyre was a city that used to be on the coast, and then they relocated to an island off the coast because they thought that would keep them safe. Alexander, when his army arrived and he realized the situation he was in, just had his men gather up the ruins of the old colony on the coast and dumped it into the sea and made a land bridge and, and eventually made it to the walls, and, and, and they slaughtered everyone in the city practically. So the question is, did Alexander go to... Israel? Did he go to Jerusalem? Because he was right there in the neighborhood. And we're not, the, the short answer is, we're not sure. Uh, there is an account by the Roman historian Josephus. He's a Jewish man who's been Romanized, culturally Roman, but ethnically Jewish, who has a recording of a story that he tells of Alexander going to Jerusalem. And uh, the story basically is that he gets involved in a dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans and ends up resolving it. And then while he's in Jerusalem, uh, an interesting thing happens. This is from Josephus. Now, Alexander, when he had taken uh, Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And he went, and when he went up into the temple, he offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction and magnificently treated both the high priests and the priests. 
And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And he was then glad, and he dismissed the multitude for the present. And so this is what this um, illustration is showing, is, is the, the priest showing him the book of Daniel. So what, is the book, what, what passage were they showing him? Well, there's a few possibilities. One of them perhaps is Daniel 8, which reads as the following. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. A lot of biblical scholars believe, that, well, he actually said this later, but this is the Medes and the Persians, and they kind of co-conquered the Babylonian Empire together, but as we know, the Persians were superior to the Medes, and the empire eventually just becomes known as the Persian Empire, and so perhaps that's the explanation of the two horns, having unequal status. And as I was considering, behold, an and he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram which had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him into the fury of his power. The ram, which thou sawest having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Gratia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That would make a lot of sense that if, if Alexander went to Jerusalem and was doing what he was doing, that the, the priest would show him this passage from Daniel chapter 8. Regardless, if that happened or not, Alexander then campaigned across the rest of the empire and quickly finished off, well, in the period of about 10 years, finished off the remainder of the Persian empire. His conquest ended uh, when he was 32. And this ended when he got to India and they, uh, uh, they got to a river, and he told his men that they were going to invade India, and his army refused and actually threatened to mutiny. Uh, they'd been away from home for many, many years. They heard rumors that in India there was a king with a gigantic army that had these things called elephants or something like that, and so they were like, nope, let's go home, and he had no choice but to agree. By the time he was finished, Alexander's empire included the whole of the Persian Empire plus Greece, and uh, that's what he took. You may notice from this map a curious uh, feature. As Alexander basically uh, trampled over the Persian Empire, he spread Greek culture. He also built new cities. And in keeping with the theme of egotistical monarchs, he named many of them after himself. In fact, Alexander built over 70 cities named some variation of his own name. Uh, the most famous of which, of course, being Alexandria in Egypt, uh, which is still a major city center even today. He even, I think this is, this is funny, he even named a city after his horse, Bucephalus. Who uh, tragically died during the campaign, really, really uh, was a blow to him. But not a biggest blow as what happened to him when he got back to Babylon. Just before his 33rd birthday, Alexander mysteriously became ill and died while in Babylon. Now, he had a wife, he had a son, but the son was just an infant. Uh, and if you know anything about succession of monarchs, even as we talked about last week, that become, can become very dangerous. So practically speaking, there was no logical successor to Alexander. They were not planning on him dying. It wasn't in the plan at all. Now, there's many theories as to what killed Alexander. Was it poison? Uh, 
course, anything's possible, uh, but based on the symptoms, a lot of doctors and medicine experts believe that he had uh, perhaps typhoid fever or malaria. Regardless, he was gone. When, his, when he died, his empire effectively passed on to the generals of his army. They are eventually known as the Diadochi, or the successors. And I think the original idea was that they would rule it together, but of course they're not going to do that. They each want to be the next Alexander. And so instead, the empire goes from this to this. And the Diadochi split the empire between themselves, and after that, they basically start a big battle royale amongst themselves, trying to uh, conquer all of the rest of them. Some of them get conquered, it consolidates into three or four different splinter kingdoms, two of which are important for the, the story of Israel. Israel originally came under the rule of, the, of, of, of Egypt, the Egyptian part of, the, of Alexander's empire. Uh, a man named Ptolemy, a general named Ptolemy, took over that part of Alexander's empire. The Ptolemies will be the new dynasty. They are Greeks living in Egypt. They uh, thoroughly Hellenized Greece, or excuse me, Egypt, and uh, this is the same royal family that uh, later Cleopatra will be a part of. So uh, Cleopatra is Greek, she's just living in Egypt, ruling over mostly Egyptian subjects. Israel at first falls in the domain of the, of the Ptolemies. They are not benevolent rulers. They oppress the Jewish people, they restrict their religious freedom. It is, it's a major downgrade from where they were with the Persians. And even under Alexander, who just, I mean, he didn't really have a lot of time to become a maniacal, oppressive ruler, but he was at least nice to them when he was alive. This changed in around the year 200 BC when the uh, other rival empire from Alexander's, em Alexander's former empire, the Seleucid Empire, which was centered in Persia and Syria, defeated the Ptolemies and took over control of, of Israel. And initially, the Seleucids are a lot more generous with the, with the Jewish people. They give them special rights. Priests are exempted from taxation. They're allowed to have all the religious rights that they want in, in Jerusalem. They can do all their sacrifices, all that. Not a problem. The effect of the Greeks coming to Israel has a major impact, though. Uh, the, the Greek language becomes very common. Uh, many, Greek, many Jewish people themselves become Hellenized and uh, begin to speak Greek and identify more as Greeks than even as Jewish people. They, there is a, sometime during while all this chaos is happening, uh, a new translation of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible begins into, into Greek. And this uh, Bible uh, began, and the story goes, uh, that it was made by 72 translators in 72 days. Is the, is the actually, there's even a more impressive legend that it was, it was actually 70 translators who each individually translated the entire Hebrew Bible into Greek in 70 days, and when they all got together and compared notes, they had all miraculously written the exact same translation. And this becomes known as the Bible of the 70 or the Septuagint, sometimes abbreviated in Roman numerals as just, uh, well, 70 in Roman numerals. And of course, we know that that will play a major role even in New Testament times, um, and even when the Bible is translated into other languages in future centuries. The, I'm going to have to really motor through the rest of this, and I'm going to do my best to be done here pretty soon. Uh, the, do you ever get that feeling you've bitten off more than you can chew? Whew, man, my jaw's getting tired. Uh, uh, the, the Jews in the land of Israel remained under Greek control until the rise of a new power coming from the West, 
And if you know your history, you're probably sure that that is definitely going to be the Romans. The Romans begin to interfere in Greek uh, affairs in the east after they defeat Carthage. Uh, the, the Seleucid king Antiochus III uh, attempted to conquer Greece from the Romans uh, with the help of actually uh, uh, the Carthaginians, but he is defeated. As part of that defeat, he has to hand over money, he has to hand over weapons, he has to hand over elephants, he even has to hand over his own son as a hostage. It's not his oldest son, but it's still one of his sons. Uh, but as it turned out, his other two sons didn't live long enough to succeed him, and that son who had been a hostage uh, with the Romans ended up coming back to uh, the Greek Empire in, in, in the Seleucid Empire and became its next ruler, Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, uh, probably better known to you as Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, then came to Egypt. He was trying to absorb the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, uh, but before he got there, or as he got there, a Roman force arrived and told him, uh, no, you know, go home, bad boy, you can't do this, Egypt belongs to us. And this is actually a pretty famous uh, incident when Antiochus comes to Egypt, his army is halted by the Romans, and an envoy from the Romans arrives to negotiate with him, really, well, that's at least what Antiochus thinks. Instead, when, when Antiochus arrives, the Roman envoy takes a stick and draws a circle in the sand around him and then hands him an ultimatum. And the Roman historian Livy tells us what happened. After receiving the submission of the inhabitants of Memphis and of the rest of the Egyptian people, some submitting voluntarily, others under threats, Antiochus marched by easy stages towards Alexandria. After crossing the river, yada, 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 he meets with the Roman commissioners, who, to whom he gave a friendly greeting and even held out his hand to populace. Populus, however, placed in his hand the tablets on which was written the decree of the Senate and told him first of all to read it. After reading it, though, he, that's Antiochus, said he would call his friends into council and consider what he ought to do. Populus, stern and imperious as ever, drew a circle around the king with the stick he was carrying and said, before you step out of that circle, give me a reply to lay before the Senate." And for a few moments, he hesitated, astounded at such a preemptory order, and at last replied, I will do what the Senate thinks right. Not till then did Populus extend his hand to the king as to a friend and an ally. Well, after this humiliation, it seems that Seleucid policy in Israel took a radical turn for the worst. Antiochus immediately then repealed all the religious privileges that had been granted to the Jewish people when his father took control. He then gave himself the fame the famous nickname Epiphanes, which means the manifest God, and then did all kinds of, of horrible things in Jerusalem to deliberately try to force Greek culture on the Jewish people, halting their sacrifices, forcing them to partake in, in Greek customs. He even built a gymnasium next to the temple and required Jewish men to go and exercise there, which, I mean, that sounds bad to me, but, 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 but in, in Greek culture, uh, men were expected to exercise in the nude, which was not kosher at all to the Jewish people. Uh, some believe that this is the time that's prophesied as the abomination of desolation and is a, is a, is a very trying time for the, for the Jewish people. But it doesn't work. The repression, instead of making the Jews more like Greeks, actually has the opposite effect. It galvanizes the Jewish population into rebellion under a particular family of Jewish people. It begins with a man named Matthias, 
The story goes that Matthias was a Jewish man in the village and he was, uh, the Greeks were there and they were forcing them to offer sacrifices to Greek gods and that he refused to do it. He, he didn't want to do it because he knew it was sacrilege. A Jewish man next to him came up and agreed to do the sacrifice and according to which version of the story you read, he killed the Jewish man who did the sacrilege and the Greek official or he just killed the Greek official. This sparked a rebellion and his son, Judas, becomes the leader of this rebellion, and even is able to pull together a ragtag group of Jews to defeat a Seleucid army that was kind of half-heartedly sent to crush the rebellion. Judas is given a nickname by his contemporaries who call him the Hammer, which is translated as Maccabee, and this is, of course, the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, the, the Maccabees are able to retake Jerusalem. They're able to purge it of all of the, the sacrilege that have been going on there. This rededication of the temple is remembered today as Hanukkah in Jewish history. The Maccabees uh, go on to defeat the Seleucids. It takes a while. Many of the members of the Maccabean family die in the process. They, at the tail end, they receive assistance from the Romans, and they're able to establish the Hasmonean kingdom. This is the dynasty that the Maccabean family creates. And for a time, before Rome has really risen fully to its power, and while the Seleucids are on the steep decline to theirs, there is actually, for a time, a fully independent and even considerably influential Jewish kingdom in the land of Israel. And this is, the, uh, this is in your notes, too, the borders of the kingdom. And it's, 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 it's about as big as David's kingdom, too. But it wasn't to last. I'll end with this. The Hasmonean kingdom lasted until, as is made the case of many times with, with, with civilizations, until they turned on themselves. A civil war between two brothers of the Hasmonean dynasty led to Roman intervention by the, the, uh, the Roman general Pompey. Pompey sided with the older brother in the confrontation and helped him win, but at the cost of his independence. And the Hasmonean dynasty was basically downgraded to just being religious figureheads in Jerusalem. And political control was handed over to another family from, uh, the, from the, of the Indominians, who are our neighboring people related to the Jews. A member of this family gets involved in Roman politics. You might remember that Pompey is the one, who, one of the men who fought Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar defeats Pompey. Uh, Julius Caesar then goes to Egypt to have his honeymoon with Cleopatra. While he's there, he helps her fight her husband, who's also her brother, uh, in a dynastic dispute to make her the actual head of Egypt. While there, uh, Caesar and his men actually underestimate the forces of the Egyptians become trapped in Egypt, and a force from the Hasmonean kingdom comes to help them, a group of Jews led by a man named Antipater, aid Julius Caesar while he's there, allowing him and Cleopatra to escape and to be saved. And in gratitude, Caesar makes Antipater the first Roman procurator of Judea. Now, you probably never heard of Antipater, but I bet you heard of his son. His son will continue that privilege earned by his father and eventually be given the, name, the title of King of Judah. And his son is Herod. And that's basically the situation that Israel finds itself at the end of the Old Testament going in to the New Testament, part of the growing Roman Empire and ruled by Herod. Well, it's 10 o'clock on the dot, and I need to finish. Thank you for joining me. We'll uh, finish off this series next week. Thank you. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. 
If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.